with that, I would love to read our teaching text. It comes from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives in God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Morning. Most of us have uh, moments in our lives that we would consider turning points, uh, where something happened or a process took place, and uh, afterwards our life was not the same anymore. Uh, Our memory tends to weight these moments a, a little differently than just our ordinary Tuesday afternoons. Those turning point moments are are moments that your mind often goes back to uh, over and over again. I I invite you uh, to to even think in just these few moments as you scan your memory, what are the ones that light up in in your past, those turning turning point moments? Um, One of the dilemmas of of preaching in public for the last 15 years is uh, you feel like you run out of stories. Um, I feel like everyone's heard uh, all the stories that you could possibly come up with. Uh, so I feel like I've, I've shared about uh, different turning points in my life countless times. So uh, if you've been around TGC for a while and you've heard part of what I'm about to share, uh, I apologize. And you can think about your turning points as I share this. But um, one of the turning points that I, I, I return to quite a bit was a, a late night counseling session that took place during the Christmas holidays, my, my junior year uh, of university. I was home for the break, and I was up one night. The rest of my family had gone to sleep. Um, But not only could I not get to sleep, but I was really starting to struggle in my mind in a way that had had become familiar to me in the previous months, but in a way that I had never experienced in my life before that time. Um, I was struggling in my mind in such a profound way. I was having, and I didn't really know the language for this at this time. It's it's so prevalent now, but I, I was having a panic attack, and I didn't know what that was, but I did know whatever I was going through was the most awful feeling that I had ever had, and I would have done anything to make it stop. 
I want to give you a little window into the things I was, I was feeling. I, I won't be able to, to sum it all up the way none of us can give the full, complete picture of our inner experience, but I felt so far away from God. Uh, even though I had had times of belief, I was back home in my parents' house, this place that you know, represented an anchoring and the teaching of who God was. Um, I felt trapped in, uh, yeah, destructive behaviors, and there were many of them, but maybe even more trapped in thought processes uh, that I had no idea really how to, how to stop from happening in my mind. Um, I had terrible uh, sort of torrents of thoughts running in my brain. All of them felt like they were pretty horrible. Some were rational and like attached to things that could genuinely happen. And then some of them were just like completely irrational. They felt like this is totally out of the blue. This probably isn't going to happen, but it's pounding in my mind nonetheless. I didn't know much at that time uh, about the fact that the scriptures say the enemy of our soul is an accuser. <laughs> but whatever I was, hap- was happening to me in this panic attack, it felt like profound and repeated accusation in my mind. The thoughts were like, you are a fraud. You've wasted <laughs> everything you've been given. You've gone too far for God to take you back again. There are limits and you've crossed them. You're like one of those people who can't be forgiven. Even when you want to be different, you cannot manage it for more than a few days. You've done too much damage to your body, too much damage to your mind. You're never going to be the same. You're never going to be normal again. In fact, you're going to die and God is going to reject you. Merry Christmas. I, I, was, I was home for Christmas break. Should have been a time of relaxation. Should have been a time of recharging the batteries with the family. And yet out here I was up in the middle of the night pacing the floor, trembling in, in my body and my mind, feeling totally accused. And so I, I did what people do, or, or at least if you have any faith background at all. I started praying one of those prayers, God, I will do anything you want, anything I'll sign on the dotted line right now. Just get me out of this. And I didn't know what God was going to say, you know, like what kind of answer would come. It was really spiritually profound when it came. This overwhelming thought started to play in my mind. Call Steve. Okay, fantastic. I guess there are many ways God, God could have answered my prayer, but this one ended up being tremendously helpful. Steve was the music minister at my family's home church. He was a guy that I had interned for uh, in, in, in previous seasons of my life. I knew him very well. But I've been th- I was thinking about this last night. The, that, those instructions after that prayer, call, call Steve. And, and how do you know that's from God? I don't know. I'm praying. I'm asking for help. And then the thing keeps repeating in my mind. Call Steve. Call Steve. Call Steve. We make God out to be sort of a tyrant. But call Steve. Okay, that's pretty reasonable. But it did. It, here's a few things about the call Steve instructions. One, it required faith. It means after 10 p.m. It's not like move to another continent necessarily faith. It's like. Uh, but it's after 10 p.m. and it's Christmas time. I know this guy's not, not looking for somebody to call him and come over and speak to him. But it required faith. The second thing is, is it was relational. And these things have come to mean so much to me over the years. It was relational. It required him to, ha- him to show grace for me. It required us to build in a, in a profound way our friendship. And something that I've come to know is that the kingdom of God 
moves along relational lines. So the call Steve instruction required faith. It was relational. It was also humbling. I had worked for this man. He thought of me as a spiritual leader. He didn't know the heights from which I had fallen. There were, there were uh, many problems in my life at this time that were fueled by immense selfishness and pride. And calling Steve meant a full confession. It meant admitting I had a serious problem that I didn't know what to do with. And the last thing is it got me out of my own head. I was having a really difficult time discerning what thoughts were my thoughts, what thoughts were accusations, what thoughts were were from God. I was lacking discernment. So I called Steve, and uh, he tells me to come over. And we ended up talking for several hours that night, and it was a turning point in my life. I was desperate, and I had real respect for this person. Those two things together make a great learner. If you're like desperate and you respect the person you're talking to, it makes for a, a great potential for learning. So I fully confessed my life. I, I, I had no energy to maintain a facade at all. The masks came off and I just poured out my heart. I wanted so bad to feel better. And I told Steve that. I was like, if you can make me feel better, literally I'll do anything. I just gave that same deal to God. I'm giving it to you as well. He knew that so much more was at stake than that. The reason it was a turning point was the things he shared with me that night. And he did it in a way, it was the desperation and the, and the respect. It was the intersection of, of my need and the right, the right words at the right time. And it was profound. He taught me about my true identity in Christ. Something that somehow growing up in, in church for, the, for 20-something years I had missed. He, taught, he told me like in practical terms why I was struggling so much. He told me how Christians live by the Holy Spirit. This is something I had somehow reduced being a follower of, of Jesus down to basically behavior modification while you wait for an eternal reward. It's like, here's a bunch of things that you shouldn't do, a bunch of things that you should do. Try your best, and, if, and, and, and one day you're going to get rewarded in heaven because of Jesus. But he taught me in practical terms how, like some, some anchors in how we live by the Holy Spirit. He talked about how God can renew our minds. I made a list of all my most ingrained sins. And after like six or seven, it stopped being embarrassing because the worst were in that first six or seven. Then you're like sort of down here, like, I don't know, pride. Um, But we made a list of all my most ingrained sins. And then we went through praying over them one by one, giving them back to God. And then he anointed my head with oil. And then he burned the list in his fireplace. I have an image of that that yellow legal pad going up in flames with that list of my most ingrained sins. Powerful visual. He declared me free in Christ that night. With the type of authority that I needed to hear, I felt genuinely like I was being put back together. As I was leaving his house, one of his parting instructions to me was, Caleb, you've been given real freedom here tonight. You don't have to work for this freedom. You have it as a gift. But you have to stand in the freedom. One way you can stand in the freedom is to saturate your mind with what God says about you. He said, I want you to memorize something. I want you to memorize Romans 6, 7, and 8. I had told God I would do anything. He says, I want you to memorize Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. Classic underachiever, memorize Romans 6. That was it. Never made it to seven. Got a little bit of eight here and there. But, man, save my life, buddy. Anything. All right, I'll memorize, you know, one-third of what you asked. How's that sound? 
But I, I, I tell that story because I've been intimidated knowing this talk was on, on the schedule because this is a turning point passage in my life. This literally, I, I feel like, put me back together and helped sa- save me. For, for, I've meditated on these verses that we're looking at this morning for almost 20 years. And, some, and much of that time, meditated on it like my life depended on it. So I want to say this, we're not going to, this is true of all these like big chunks of Romans that we're hitting, we can't possibly cover it all, but I want to share a few things that have been most helpful to me, and a tremendously like, I would not be here without the, these principles sort of, sort of way. This is one of those ones that I have life experience, like this part of my Bible has been, you know, it's got the smudges on it. I, I've looked over this so much. So I want to elaborate basically on three little categories that I think come up in these 14 verses. And it's this. These are things that I've, I've, I've learned from this passage. I learned from that night. I've learned from the Holy Spirit. I've learned from many of you. Here they are. What we freely choose can enslave us. What we freely choose can enslave us. Secondly, knowing our identity, our true identity is essential. Knowing our true identity is essential. And then lastly, and and hopefully very practically, how do you stand in the freedom of Christ? So I want to walk walk through these quickly together. The first one is, what we freely choose can enslave us. The first verse that we're looking at here begins with a question. And even if you haven't asked it in these exact words, I bet you've had something of a similar thought. The, 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 the passage begins, what shall we say then? I'm sure you haven't asked it in these words. Who talks like that? What shall we say then? Shall we continue sinning? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What, what, what is that about? I think what essentially is being asked here follows on the heels of what Paul has been teaching. In, 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 in chapter 5, this letter takes a turn. And, and for, for four chapters before that, Paul's been outlining all the ways that disconnected from God, human beings have run amok in the world, done damage to themselves, done damage to the world, and, and, are, and are living in a place where they're trying to find something that, that doesn't exist apart from God. And then in, verse, in chapter 5, he starts talking about the majesty of God's grace. And, and he, he says, where sin increased, right, this was last week, grace superabounded. Paul invented a word to talk about the majesty of God's grace in the chapter before. Where, where sin increased, grace superabounded. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. What, what does that mean? It, it, let, let's get our imaginations around this. It wasn't, it wasn't just that we weren't behaving well. It's that when we were centered upon and working intently for aims that are totally opposed to what God wants in the world. We were living as enemies. He loved us and he died for us. Essentially, the, 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 the unmissable thrust of, of, of Romans 5 is it's all grace. You haven't brought anything to the table to achieve your own redemption. So here's the question. If God is so incredible for forgiving us, and God is going to for, continue to forgive us, that's one of the things that makes God great is he forgives. How about we just give him more material for showing how great he is? How about we just continue to live however we want, not worry so much about, uh, about our behavior? Why not just relax and live however we want? Even if it's how we used to live, let God do the forgiving, and no big deal. I'll never forget one of the first times I ever tried to share 
the message about Jesus was one of my friends, a, a teammate on my basketball team. I was in the 10th grade. His name was Joseph Smith. Not that Joseph Smith, but this guy was a, this guy was a Mormon, no tablets. But um, I remember, walk, I remember walking my friend Brett's neighborhood up this hill. This is a, I don't know if this is a turning point moment, but I remember it so well. Walking with Joe, good friend. We're talking meaningfully like 10th grade guys. I don't know that I'd had many conversations like this. I'm sharing my faith, like feeling super nervous. I lay it out. We, we have a, a few pause for a few steps. And Joe says, that's way too easy. And I had no retort for that. I was like, okay, guess we play JL Man next week. Um, just back to basketball. I didn't, I didn't know exactly what to say, but he was essentially getting at the impulse of this question at the top of Romans 6. If it's all grace, then why don't we just live however we want? Paul raises the question as, as uh, someone anticipating the arguments of those who are, who are reading what he writes. He's, he's addressing those who are looking for license to do whatever they want, but maybe even a louder crowd. He's addressing those who are going to accuse him of giving license to people to do whatever they want. Why, why should we go? Why, why should we care anything about how we live? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, the NIV translates it, by no means. Your translation may say, may it never be. In the strongest possible terms, you've missed the point entirely, and of course not. And here's his reasoning. Do you not know that you were a slave? You've totally been made free from the life of a slave, and you're asking me if you should go back to living like a slave. No way. You are free. Don't settle for the comforts of your captivity, even if you are familiar with them. We know this is what he means from a couple of places that, that follow. In verse 6 he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Then in verse 9, he mentions that because of what Jesus did on the cross, death no longer has mastery over him. In verse 14, he says, sin shall no longer be your master. Now, is this just dramatic language? What, 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 what's, what's Paul saying here? In the previous sections of, 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 of this letter, and, and, and track with me through this technical part. This is, this is really important. And we're going to get to some stuff that I think is, is easier to digest. But in the previous sections of this letter, Paul's been saying that we live as human beings in one of two primary ways. Either we live in the way and the stream of Adam, or we live in the way and the stream of Jesus. In Adam, we inherit brokenness in our relationship with God that leads to brokenness in our nature and our choices. That we are... In, in the words of the scripture, sinful by nature and by choice. By nature, our nature becomes to be our own God and look for the, the, the meeting of the deepest needs of our life without taking God into account. And then by choices, we live out being our own gods in many different specific ways. Paul is saying, whether you believe him yet or not, Paul is saying that the ways that you live apart from God reinforce your slavery you can start to grasp the heart of it by understanding a word that shows up in verse 12. 
It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. So, so dramatic, this language. The word evil desires here, and, and I, I know you were looking for a, a Greek lesson, is a Greek word, epithemia. And honestly, Tim Keller has done some of, some of the best work on understanding this word and its implications in, in, in our generation. Um, but the word epithemia, it takes the word themia, which is desire, and then it puts the word epi in front of it. So it's, it's, it's ultimate, supercharged, over-desires. There are over-desires that are, are, are wrought in your life that if, 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 if followed actually make you a slave to those desires. You imagine that you're freely choosing to follow them, but they actually are your master. They have a hold on you. The NIV translator has put the word evil in front of these desires to show that these super desires cannot possibly deliver what they promise. Think about that for a moment. They're evil, not because they're, they're obviously and inherently would be labeled as blatantly wrong. They're evil because in the heart of what they're promising, they don't have the capacity to deliver. These epithemia, these over-desires, are promising you something they don't have the capacity to deliver. So they're evil in the sense that in, in, in the life they're leading you into, they lack integrity. They can't deliver what they're promising you. There was a form of bond service in the first century where, this is important to, to know because this metaphor comes up a couple of times in the New Testament. There's a form of bond service in the first century where a person who, who found themselves in crushing debt uh, and had no other way to get out could sell themselves to a master for a period of time, let's say five or ten years, and give the entirety of their life to the control of this person for the paying off of their debt. So after the time period of bond service was over, they would be free. And Paul's saying, you don't understand that you've come into bond service by nature and by choice to something that can't set you free from your debts, and in the end is actually leading you towards death and not towards freedom. Bob Dylan in his Christian faith said, you got to serve somebody. Commentary on Romans 6. So try to think of it in, in practical terms. When, when sin is your master, you have these overcharged super desires, these ultimate desires that are in the place where God should be in your life, but they're, they're, they're directing your affections, your, uh, your attitude and attention, your energy. These are the things that can ask the most of you and you won't say no to them because you believe they're actually essential to, to your life having meaning. When, when sin is your master, your over-desires can be for things like getting the praise of other people. You start to live for the approval of other people. Or you start to live for a sense of perfectionism, achieving the things that, 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 that are on your list, living what, what you have set out as the, as the good life. Or, or maybe it's individuality. You, you have this over sense of desire of, of, of setting, yourself, setting yourself apart and, 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 and your self-expression becomes the primary way that you think about your life, achieving in your career. You know, like... Your sexual appetites and the, and the expression and fulfillment of those can, can, can be one of the things that becomes an epithemia, an over-desire. The security of money, right? Food and drink as our comfort, as our indulgence. 
Basically, anything that goes in the place where God is meant to dwell in your life. This is, this is familiar territory for many of us. So much of what we freely choose can ensnare and enslave us because it can't deliver what it promises in its form of desire. So, Paul says this, and, and, and concentrate with me on, the, on, the, on these sentences. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or you don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will, also, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Some of the things we freely choose can ensnare us. And the nature of how ensnared we are, we can be blind to. Paul says the way forward is we have to return to our true identity. Knowing our true identity is essential. Even more essential than certain oils that you might choose. If you can imagine something being more essential than on guard. These are Park Slope jokes, and they're killing. Knowing our true identity is is essential. Paul is, uh, is saying this. You have to know, right, followers of Jesus, listen, you have to know that you are in full union with Jesus, that means the things that are true about Jesus are true about you. The things that are true about Jesus are true about you. Is this the lived experience of your mental reality? Is this the lived experience of your everyday life? The things that are true about Jesus are true about you. Knowing your true identity is absolutely essential. If we don't have that in our hearts, we are going to live so significantly back from what God has called us to. When you trust Christ as your Savior, your entire experience is brought into union with him. And the things that are true about Jesus are true about you. What this means is your past is dealt with. Your future is secure. You will certainly share in a resurrection like his. And the question of your present is dealt with. I want to hit, hit these very quickly. The way Paul get, gets at understanding this in this passage is he uses two images. The image of baptism and the image of the exodus. The one is right there on the surface. You can't miss it. And the other is, is, it t- takes a tiny bit more work, but it's there. Here's, here's what he says. Do you not know... That when you were baptized, you took part in Jesus' death. You were baptized into his death. Literally the motion of baptism, the lowering into the water, you were baptized into his death. Your past has been fully and completely dealt with. It's like everything that once had a hold on you no longer has a hold on you. He who has died has been set free. But when you came out of the water, right, the next piece of the imagery, I'm sorry that I left my imaginary person in there so long. 
But when you come out of the water, you're raised to, to a new life. You're going to share in a resurrection like his. Your past is entirely dealt with. And your future is completely secure. You're going to share. When Jesus walked out of the grave, it was the beginning of the renewal of all things. It was the beginning of an entire new way of being human. And he was the firstborn from among the dead. And he has invited us in union with him through the gospel to join in that resurrection. Our past is completely dealt with. Our future is secure in him. So what about the present? This is, you know, just as a quick aside, this is the reason baptism is a crucial first step of obedience for anyone who trusts Jesus, because it lets you see, right? Your your spiritual life is not an ethereal thing that floats around out here and just circulates in your mind. It is a physical thing. The sacraments that Jesus left us are a bath and a meal. You need to go into the water and have a full sensory immersion in the message of the gospel. You have died, and your life is buried with Christ, and you're raised to walk in newness of life. This is why it is so crucial. Our our step of obedience, once we've trusted Christ, is to be baptized. We are buried with him, and we are raised with him. So I want to say, if you haven't been, be baptized. I'll give this theological disclaimer. The thief on the cross is proof that you can be saved without being baptized. But if you've lived one or two days past that, you should go ahead and do it. Like if you're being crucified and you turn to Jesus, you're good to not be baptized. Everyone else needs to go ahead and do it. Because, because why? Because it centers our imagination on the message of the gospel. That the immersion in the water is the story that we're living. You've been buried with him. Your old life is gone. It's underwater. It drowned. And what came out of the water is new life. And, enti- and what does that mean, right? It means a new identity, Sure. And it means new actions. But the thing that links identity and action is desire. That is the straw that stirs the drink. Your spirituality, church, is what you want most. And those epithemia that controlled us before when we, were, when we had so much practice being our own gods, not just individually, but as an entire race of people, as, as, as humanity, we have so much practice being our own gods. And these epithemia become our inheritances. And they're things we utterly live for, and yet they can't deliver what they're selling. They can't deliver what they're promising. The desires are saying, take you down this road to fulfillment, and you get there, and there's nothing there but sand in your mouth. There's nothing there but death. When that is gone, you're buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. It changes the taste buds of your soul. Weird. But the things you want most begin to change, your desires. Now, that's a pretty powerful image, baptism. It's, it's a sacrament for those who trust Christ that I want to call all of us to. We need to, be, we need to be demonstrating the physical message of the gospel through baptism for everyone who trusts Christ. If you have, maybe you're, you'll feel the, the, the led by the Spirit to, to do that. But there's another picture that's here. And some of Paul's Gentile readers may have had ignorance of Israel's history. And uh, they might not have seen this. But he is reminding us in this passage of the Exodus. Think about what he's saying. When you pass through the waters, you passed out of slavery. You've been given a new law. It's the law of grace. 
And you're promised a new land, a new entire way to live in an entirely new place. Don't live anymore like you're, making, you're, make, you're a slave making bricks in Egypt. Whatever familiarities and comforts that you had there, I know you liked the soup. I know there was leeks in the soup. You mentioned that in the wilderness. But whatever comforts you had there, you were a slave. You were building a false empire. And now you've passed through the waters and you're being led to the promised land and you're, you're being reconstituted out of a, a, a mentality and a culture of slavery into a mentality and culture of freedom as sons and daughters of God. We're going to get to that by Romans 8. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are sons and daughters of God. We don't have a spirit of slavery anymore. We have a spirit of freedom. That's That's coming. Do not live anymore like you're a slave making bricks in Egypt. Can you imagine? Right. Ignore that it's impossible by the narrative details found in the Exodus, but just imagine this with me for a minute. Can you imagine an Israelite on the other side of the Red Sea? Years have passed. They're traveling along. Uh, An evening comes. They're standing outside of their tent. They're watching the sunset. Their kids are playing with the neighbor's kids from the, from the tent next door, enjoying a glass of wine. All of a sudden, a terrifyingly familiar voice comes. One of the former masters from Egypt strolls up to the tent and barks, where are my bricks, Joseph? I told you I would not stand another shortfall. Can you imagine just like the visceral reaction, the unexpected sort of jolt in the stomach, maybe the glass of wine is spilt? Maybe even starts to make a movement, starts to think of an excuse. This was his former master who, if he disobeyed, uh, intense physical punishment, economic punishment could, could have come on him and his family. I have to follow this master because if I don't, there will be no life for me and mine. But now he's come through the Red Sea. He's, he's living in this place of freedom. He's being re- reformed into the, into the way of promise. But that voice of the old master comes into it and he starts a little bit. He, he, he begins to believe, oh, maybe I should. And, and Then he would remember he's not in that country anymore. He's not under that master anymore. His true identity is as a child of God. It's astounding in the redemption of the Israelites. They got to see their captors and masters and accusers drown. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk. Their accuser went under the water, literally. For us, we often let them have their old power back. We hear that voice barking at us. We hear that accusation. We hear that temptation to go after the epithumia, the old desires that used to shape my very existence. And it's so easy for us to go back to them. We're so, we're so trained. We've been trained our entire lives to be our own gods. Paul is saying, your past went down into the grave with Jesus. Your future is as secure as if you were in the promise of the next life now. That's how secure you are. That's where Jesus is. And your present question is, will you live out who God says you are? Will you live out who God says you are? N.T. Wright says, part of the point of being a Christian is that the future has come forward into the present and the person and achievement of Jesus. 
so that his followers already taste the reality of that future while living in the present. The Christian stands on resurrection ground. We are not in Adam. We are in the Messiah, the one who died and is now alive forevermore. Will you live out who God says you are? Or will you march again to the bark of your old master? That leads me to the last thing I want to say, which is how do we stand in the freedom of Christ. And the, and the rest of this, this chapter and the chapters to come are, are going to address it. So we're going to skim along the surface for just a moment. If you're wondering how much time we have left, not much. We're doing great. You're doing great. Here, here's, here's some practical instructions for how you stand in this new freedom that is yours through union with Jesus. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law but under grace. These verses start to get into the practical steps of how you fight temptation. How you fight the voice of those old, overcharged desires. How you avoid going back to your old master. This is the thing that Steve, call Steve, remember Steve? This is the thing that Steve wanted in my heart as I left his house that night. God has given you victory in Jesus. You are united with him. You don't win your freedom. He's won your freedom. You stand in your freedom. How? Count on it as if it's true. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The, the, the first part of this is a theological statement. You have been united with him in his burial, in his resurrection. This is Your past and, and, and future are dealt, are, are dealt with. You're utterly free. Now, now reckon that as so, as the old translation says. Count on it. In your mind and in your heart, count on it on the fact that you are who God says you are, that he is the highest authority. The the word count here literally is an accounting term. Do the math. If Jesus has gone to the cross and shed his blood for your sins, what else do you think would be required? What else do you need to put in the ledger? Even if you can't believe the sum of your calculations, you have to know that you are dead to your old way of living. Act as if it no longer has a hold on you. This thing, this banner of truth is declared over your life, and on a regular Tuesday, in a moment of temptation, when that old desire comes barking at you, you're to count yourself as dead to that. You're literally to say, I know that old way of thinking. I know where that comes from, and I know where that leads. It leads to sand in my mouth. It leads to death. It leads to shame. It leads to relational fracturing. I know that voice, and I know where it leads. I count myself dead to that. You turn, in a sense, to that accuser or to that, the invitation of that epithumia, and you say, no more. You are not my master anymore. Take it up with Jesus. I am free. I am united to him. He is my resurrection. He is my life. I'll give you right one more time. Resisting temptation isn't a matter of pretending you wouldn't find it easier to give in. It's a matter of learning to think straight and to act on what you know to be true. To act on who God says you are, not how you feel in a particular moment. 
The second thing, count yourselves dead to sin, right? This mental energy of, of, of reckoning what God has said to be true about you to be true. And the second thing is to watch over your desires. What are the desires that you're allowing to percolate in your soul? Do not, the, the, the NIV says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Those epithemia are constantly clawing for the throne in your heart. Watch over the things that are clawing for the throne of your heart, that are asking for most of your time, most of your affection, most of your money and resources is being freely given to this thing. That, that might be an epithemia that wants an over-desire that's after your heart. Know that when you have anything leading and shaping your desires other than God, you're, you're in for a crushing disappointment. I want to say this is important. Many of these desires might not seem blatantly evil on the surface at all, but they're after reigning in your heart in the place of God. Do not let anything else be the king of your life. So watch your desire. Count in your mind yourself alive to God and dead to sin. Watch over the the desires that are reigning within you and then watch over your actions. Do not offer any part of yourself as an instrument of wickedness. Basically, like, don't start to run into, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson says this, and I'm going to read this in just a second. He says, don't even run little errands that you used to run in Egypt. I want you to reckon it in your mind. I want you to watch over your desires, and I don't want you to even give a pinky's direction in the way of your old life. I don't want you to make any provision for putting yourself in a place where you might act in that old way again or live out of those old desires again. Here's Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. This is brilliant. You must not give a a, a sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly in full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny anymore. You're living in the freedom of God. You're living in the freedom of God. And it's not by your accomplishments. It's by the accomplishment of Jesus. And so they're absolutely unimpeachable. So with the full authority of God, I want to say to you, church, if you're united with Christ, you're invited to live in the full freedom of God. You don't have to to march to the bark of that old master anymore. All the conspiracy of God has been to renew this world with a staggering love, and you were invited. This is a declaration of your freedom, and it is a roadmap for how to live it out. Count it as so in your mind. Pay attention to what you're wanting most, and pay attention to the actions you're following. Are they in line with what God says about you as, your, as a son or daughter, or are they in line with an old way? An old way of life. We're going to talk more in the days to come about living out this freedom in practical ways. But for many of you today, you need to ask God for this freedom. And as you ask, you need to know on the, on the, on the blood of Jesus that he wants to give it to you. Perfect freedom. Dead to that old way. Alive to God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for 
the people in this room who are trying to manage a desperation in the way I was trying to manage it before I called Steve. They feel trapped in their mind, trapped in their actions, trapped in a cycle of behavior. They feel trapped far away from from your promises. They feel stuck. I'm gonna pray for people who are feeling outright or quietly desperate. I wanna pray in the name of Jesus that your freedom would flood their hearts and minds this morning. The freedom that comes to us in Jesus, freedom that is a gift, freedom that gives honor and glory to you because you're the one who wins it and the one who sustains it, but freedom that makes our hearts alive with joy and alive with purpose. I pray that you would minister by the power of your spirit. God, I pray if there needs to be prophetic words spoken in this place this morning that will unlock the keys to people's hearts and and they'll know they're seen and known by you and they don't have to hide anymore, I pray those words will be spoken. I pray if it's the poetry of the song or or the uh, the physical activity of coming to the table and remembering your body is broken your blood is shed, whatever it takes to unlock us, to open our hands, to open our hearts this morning, I pray that you would do it. And I pray, come Holy Spirit, minister the freedom of Christ to this to this people to, to my own heart pour out your presence lead us in your way may we be dead to sin and alive to you in Christ in Jesus name amen we're going to continue worshiping in song we're going to come to the table in just a moment I want to just give you a moment of reflection A moment for you to pray as honestly as you can in your inner monologue that no one can hear. That you can pray, God, what are you inviting me to? What what freedom are are you offering? What thing do you want to rescue me from or set me free from? How do you want to minister to me? What what ways should I respond? As you ask that, I'm gonna I'm gonna I, I believe the Holy Spirit is gonna answer. If you're one of those people who God gives you a prophetic word, you feel like it's for unlocking some of the keys in folks' lives. you can come and share that. We're going to pray for one another in just a little bit, but let's reflect on how God is, is asking us to respond in faith to his word. And then we're going to continue to worship in song and come to the table in just a moment. So sit right where you are and just pray, reflect on how God is inviting you to respond.